Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Nidal Patel. He's the senior partner at Lippincott. Nittle works at the intersection of business strategy and customer insights. With almost two decades of experience, he's working with global brands across industries on issues such as brand architecture, portfolio assessment, and positioning. On the show today, we talk about a new version of brand architecture that Lippincott has just released called Agile Master Brand. Talk about what it is, how to use it, and the important aspects of it, and especially governance of your brand using this model and setting specific timing and, and criteria for when you would merge an extension back into the master brand. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and deep dive into master brand or the agile master brand as it should be with Niddle Patel. Well, Niddle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hear we should start off with your love and um, maybe inspiration for a French whiskey brand. Tell me about that. So I co-founded a, a French whiskey band uh, a number of years ago. It was actually the first French single malt that was brought to the States and basically built it from the ground up. So built a brand around it, built the marketing and actually worked with a distiller in Cognac, France to actually make the product too. He was uh, making Cognac and he started experimenting with making whiskey. And we worked with him to basically, you know, 
adjust the flavor profile and then import it to the States. And it was a fun adventure, <laughs> to, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I'm a whiskey fan. I'm more of a bourbon person now, but I've never had a French single malt. Like, does it have a different flavor profile than, say, scotch or something like that or bourbon? Yeah, it depends on obviously which French whiskey. Uh, when we launched this, I think there were two or three total on the market, but now there, there are plenty. And some of them are trying to mimic a bourbon or mimic a scotch. Uh, we were actually going for something that felt a little bit more French and approachable. And it also had a, a hint of cognac flavoring as well. It was actually aged in cognac barrels. So that gave it a very, very different flavor profile than everything else there out in the market. I'll have to try some French whiskey for sure. Let's start about business and tell me about your career and how you ended up at Lippincott. And frankly, I'm always interested in somebody that's a brand strategist. Like, when did you realize that brand was a thing you were interested in? <laughs> it was a roundabout journey, I guess, how most people's careers are. I started off in litigation consulting of all places. So helping prepare lawyers for trial, helping them prepare witnesses and you know, essentially doing a lot of research to get lawyers ready for complex business litigation. So I did that for a couple of years and then went off to business school to make a, a pivot. At that point in time, I, I realized I wanted to do something in marketing. And I actually didn't even know there was anything called brand strategy <laughs> at the time. I was like, I like brands. Let's. I should do marketing. So I, I ended up working for a couple of different CPG companies uh, over the years. So I worked for Revlon, worked for Kraft Foods. And I probably would have stayed in that industry. But what happened is my brand actually was sold and I was going to have to relocate outside of New York. And I just didn't want to do that. And so this is actually a great opportunity for me because I basically had a year to figure out like, what do I want to do next while still having a job? And that brought me to Lippincott, um, which is where I've been for the last 15 years. So it was, it was a kind of a roundabout journey and to some extent, luck. It's funny. I, I mean, I've had a number of friends that and, and been in brand strategy myself. And it's it's so funny, like the variety of backgrounds of different people, you know, <laughs> like from people that have spent time in industry like, like CPG or yourself or had these weird starts to their careers, like teachers or sociologist or like it's a very eclectic group i i find we're going to talk quite a bit about this notion of agile master brand and this new model that you've developed at lippincott where did the notion begin for an agile master brand and and maybe before we get there like what is an agile master brand at its highest level an agile master brand is a brand architecture framework that companies can use to really support growth, but at the same time, continue to support their master brand. So that's sort of the big idea in a nutshell. It's, it's the balance between master brands being very efficient. You know, companies, most many companies have really strong master brands that they want to continue to reinforce, but sometimes master brands aren't as conducive to growth as companies want them to be. When did this notion of a new model emerge for you? The when is a, is a good question. I'm not sure exactly when. It's been kind of batting around in the back of my mind for a little while, but it, it's really premised uh, off of just working with a number of clients and client after client, they're all chasing growth, it's something that companies have done for years. But now it's much more focused on disruptive growth. So it's, it's no longer, you know, how can we grow a couple of percentage points this year, you know, what are we going to do to 
to make our numbers. It's more like, how can we actually grow by 20 or 30% the next year? And it's, it's driven by innovation. So it's like really groundbreaking innovation, new technology, innovative experiences. So really just kind of rethinking the approach to growth is, is where it all started. And as we looked at some of those innovations, like they really just begged for a new brand. They were so different, so groundbreaking that putting them under the existing master brand just would have been a disservice and to some extent would have potentially hurt those innovations. And there wasn't really a model in terms of how to deal with that other than to just create a new brand, but then you're sort of going against the whole idea of a master brand. And so this is a way to try to support that growth, uh, but at the same time, supporting the master brand. Is it fair to say there's some of the efficiencies of a master brand strategy because it's still somewhat master brand led, but enough separation such that you can start to build new equities or new associations with the brand? It's those two things, essentially. So it's obviously there's an efficiency play, especially over the long term. But it's, I think it's also a good balance between the short and long term, too. So short term, you're really supporting that new offering. But longer term, you're actually building equity in the master brand so that you're actually expanding the playing field for that master brand so that when that next new innovation comes out, your master brand actually has a, a broader breadth and a broader understanding. And so it actually has more permission to go into some of these new areas that perhaps previously it wouldn't have been and you would need to create something new. Well, let's talk about how the model works and what should we know about how to make this model work for you? Essentially, there's two key elements to the model. The first is creating a couple of new categories within what we would consider a traditional master brand framework. And those two key categories are what we're calling new ventures uh, and signature offerings that I can certainly explain a little bit more about that. But then the second element is really the agile part of it, which is the, the active management. A lot of times architectures are implemented and then they're not touched for the next five or 10 years. And this approach requires, uh, and one of the benefits of it is, is a real active approach to evaluating your master, or sorry, your architecture on a fairly continuous basis to understand when to actually start to pull things a little bit closer to that master brand, to pull things back that you create in those two new categories. Let's definitely dive into um, new ventures and signature offerings, if you don't mind. The two categories are essentially built off of what we're seeing in the marketplace. And at the highest level, we're seeing two, two types of, call them innovations, quote unquote, that are being brought to market. And so the first one is new ventures. And, and these are obviously innovations. You know, they're, they're groundbreaking, they're, they're differentiated, but they're designed to generate new revenue. They're designed to attract new audiences. And, and probably most importantly, the idea behind them is to start to bring new equity to that master brand where the master brand potentially couldn't stand for it or doesn't stand for it today. So like an example would be uh, HPE. So HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, you know, traditionally known for making hardware, big servers. They introduced a hybrid cloud service called HPE GreenLake. And so in our minds, that would be characterized as a new venture. They created this new brand, GreenLake, Still closely related to HP, but GreenLake started to provide the permission for a company that was known for hardware to go into something that's hybrid cloud-based. And if you follow them over the years, you've seen actually GreenLake being brought closer and closer back to just HP because at this point in time, it's associated more with the HP brand. So that's a little bit of what the uh, evolution might look like. 
And then for signature offerings, again, innovative. But here the idea is this is something that is really about amplifying the equity of a master brand. So it's not necessarily a revenue driver, but it is something that's that's fairly differentiated. And this is really about adding and supporting equities that uh, a master brand may already stand for, but with something that is truly, I wouldn't say always groundbreaking, but many times groundbreaking and, and many times needs that separate brand to get that attention. So, you know, a great example of that is Patagonia. So they have this uh, workwear brand that they created in 2013. And basically it was educating Patagonia customers on how to repair their clothing and really supporting the idea of sustainability. Uh, and they've expanded that over the years to now be basically a place where you can actually purchase remanufactured Patagonia goods. And so you can imagine if they call that like usedpatagonia.com, no one's going to go there uh, it's, and it's not going to get that attention. But by creating the separate brand, still obviously closely tied to Patagonia, you're actually giving the credit that it deserves. And I would imagine over time, there's probably just going to be a section on Patagonia's website that's going to be just buy used Patagonia. But you know, at that point in time, it's just going to be something that Patagonia does. These are good examples because you know, you've got almost like a, a master brand plus sub brand or division brand or something, if you will, uh, in these two examples, like how connected to the master brand should this, you know, a new venture be? So that's a little bit of the, the art and science of it all. It, it, it depends on, you know, exactly what you're doing. So in some cases you want to make it pretty closely connected, especially when there's a limited amount of risk. And you're you're kind of building off of some of the latent associations that the master brand may have. So a good example of that would be Marcus by Goldman Sachs. So obviously Goldman Sachs, B2B, investment banking, high end, but it's still in the financial space. And so when Marcus was being created, obviously it's, it's a new consumer audience. It's not high end. Um, so Marcus helped create a little bit of that separation. But obviously, at the end of the day, it was financial. Uh, and also, even if that failed, the B2B customers on the Goldman Sachs side, I don't think they would really care you know, if their consumer bank failed or not. It really doesn't affect their business. On the other end of the spectrum, something like, I'd say, you know, Audi. So Audi uh, acquired Silvercar. And so Silvercar is a car rental service that provides exclusively Audi cars. And you can easily imagine, I'm sure you've had this experience, the rental car experience is not great. <laughs> and so things go wrong, your car's not ready, you know, you get a bad car. And so you could imagine that if it were Audi rentals and something went wrong with the rental experience, it could really negatively affect the Audi brand. So they created uh, a little bit more separation when they first uh, acquired that brand, but what you've seen over the last couple of years, it's actually being brought much more closer into Audi now, and they're actually offering the service at dealers. So they sort of understand that they can make this work. They understand they've limited some of the risks, and now they can start to pull it back a little bit closer to the Audi brand. That makes a lot of sense. And and it, it does seem to be, you, you said this before, but it's the combination of what you're trying to achieve, whether a new venture or a signature offering, but also this like you have to have this active management component. So what do you need to manage an agile brand approach? Like what are the components? Yeah, the active management is key. Uh, so I'll just emphasize that. I think uh, otherwise you'll just end up with brand proliferation and 
essentially you know, move more towards a hybrid model and you sort of defeat the purpose of, of what you're trying to accomplish here. As you develop each of these brands, the new ventures or the signature offerings, it's important upfront to think through what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, and there's certainly many different dimensions to that, but I think that there are two probably core aspects of it. First is, what are the equities that you're trying to imbue the master brand with? So if you're creating a new venture, what are those new equities that you're trying to create that the master brand doesn't stand for today? And if it's a signature offering, what are the equities that you're trying to amplify within the master brand? And then over time, what you can do is essentially measure uh, through research, and obviously you can do it through multiple methods, how much has that master brand evolved? And if you were to launch that product today, would it fit naturally under the master brand? And so I think a good example of that would be when Apple purchased uh, Beats by Dr. Dre. So they originally kept it separate. Over the years, they brought it in closer. But if you take a step back and think about the underlying strategy, you know, Apple wasn't known for the best headphones. <laughs> today. Um, in fact, people did not like them, which is why there's such a big secondary market. So when they made that acquisition, I would imagine it would be pretty difficult for them to immediately rebrand those as Apple headphones. But as Apple became more and more associated with the Beats brand, you know, over time became fairly natural that, okay, yeah, Apple has Beats and they can make good headphones now, just don't get the, the white ones. And so they brought it a little bit closer. So you, you can start to see how Apple started to build that permission to start going into things that are a little bit more sound oriented, couldn't have necessarily done that upfront. And then the second thing to think about is also just whether it's still innovative or not. Um, and this is very much applicable for the signature offerings in particular. And you may introduce an innovative experience, but then everyone else is copying it. I think, I don't know if you remember, but 10 years ago, all the health insurance companies were introducing this doctor finder app. Uh, and you could just go online and put in your address and you find doctors near you and one of the insurers created a name for it, DocFind. <laughs> and they had it for a couple of years. Uh, but then obviously when other people started doing that same thing, it just became the doctor finder. So they were the first ones to market. They created something that was a little bit different, but then you know, it became something that everyone does. And so they, you know, basically it's just called health brand DocFind. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You talked about like the equities defining those up front, like what you're trying to add or amplify the measurement system. And, and if you will, like 
I guess governance for lack of a better word in terms of like at what point do you has the master brand achieved the accretion of those new equities if you will if it's on the new side do you set a time horizon on this or is that something you just kind of monitor over time I don't think there's necessarily a set time horizon although I do think when you launch something you should be thinking about the marketing behind it and what you're trying to accomplish in the growth of that particular you know venture or offering and, and where you think it'll hit scale and that could give you at least a rough ballpark of when you might want to think about pulling it back but it is a little bit more of a monitoring process i would say so hopefully you know the company that you're at is already doing you know either semi-annual or annual brand tracking data uh, and as part of that you can measure the attributes associated with the master brand and, and then hopefully start to see some of that change uh, and then you know at some point in time it's going to be brand it's also going to be business strategy where you all you start to think about bringing it closer into the master brand i have one more kind of oddball question for you so i i'll, I'll say it's odd at, at the start and you can you can correct me or, or take me in a different direction if, if need be but there's a a lot of brands i feel like that are moving into this space of trying to be a become a platform quote unquote, whatever that means. Some examples I can think of would be Amazon Web Services or AWS and other people innovating on top of that platform. I've also heard John Deere has something similar. It's more owned in some respects, but where growers and manufacturers within the ecosystem of farming are collaborating together. How do you think about brands becoming a platform or trying to move in that direction? And is this agile brand or agile master brand, is that a way to help manage through that or not? There's a lot of companies that, yeah, that are, that are trying to build platforms. And even in the examples that you just talked about, the platform is often about bringing together customers, obviously, but even potential competitors uh, and have them all work on the same platform. And I think the question always comes to mind of if, if I'm John Deere and I'm creating this ecosystem, am I going to be concerned that John Deere is going to try to be selling me something, you know, are competitors going to feel comfortable on that platform? And even for AWS, you know, if I'm doing something on AWS, is, is the Amazon side of the house going to knock it off and create a competitor? And so this is where I do think the Agile Master Brand has value. In those examples in particular, if you can imagine John Deere creating a slightly separated brand, you know, and we can figure out what, what you call it, but even if you call it like JD ecosystem, you create a little bit of separation from that master brand. And you can obviously build out the ecosystem the way you want. But over time, as that ecosystem becomes more and more valuable, people want to be part of the platform, you can start making that connection back to John Deere a little bit more explicitly and building that master brand now. So John Deere obviously sells things, but it's also seen as a, as a good partner in the business space. I think actually Android is a great example of that too. Yeah. I never, I, I didn't think about Android as a platform, but it is <laughs> like it's an OS essentially. So yeah, I'm sure other technology providers that adopted that probably had the same hesitation about like Google and, you know, is this what I want to do or not? But it gives them a little bit of separation and permission. Yeah. And now you can see like, especially over the last couple of years, Google has been making much more closer associations with Android. Like if you've seen like the latest phones, it's like the Google Android phone. 
Uh, and so again, it's like you've established Android is good. Companies want to be a part of it. They understand that Google's not going to necessarily take advantage of them. And now you can start to bring in those equities. This has been fun. I, I love talking about brand strategy and geeking out a little bit, frankly. <laughs> so thanks for entertaining my, my questions and going on this trip with me. We always love to get to know the person behind the microphone. We know that you have a, a love of French whiskeys, <laughs> but let's go a little deeper. This next question is my favorite to ask, which is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I don't think there's a singular experience. So I'll start with that. This is not necessarily a singular experience, but I think it is something that's really defined me, if I say, especially over the last 20 years or so. Uh, it's kind of strange to some extent, but I have never liked headphones. So it goes back to our earlier conversation. For whatever reason, like I never liked anything on my ears. I never liked earbuds. You know, even when Walkmans were out, like I didn't like those big phone thing. So like I bought an iPod, I have an iPhone, I have headphones, but I never, I don't really use them that often. So what that actually has enabled me to do, I actually, so I walk around the city. I live in New York a fair amount and I don't have earbuds in. <laughs> and so I've just become much more observant over the years, just because I think everyone else, or not everyone else, but a lot of folks are just are in their own world to some extent, uh, listening to music. And for me, it's just kind of opened my eyes to what is going on outside and especially how people are interacting, what grabs their attention. And it's, it's, I think it's given me just additional insight as I think about building brands and just understanding a little bit more about how people think uh, and how they actually act in the real world. It makes a lot of sense. When you first started down this path, though, I had this vision of you in the 1980s with a big boombox on your shoulder. So, <laughs> um, so funny enough, I, I had a big boombox, uh, and, and I was part of a breakdancing gang. Oh, nice! Yeah, I I remember pulling out the cardboard boxes on the playground and and trying to trying to spin on my head. I could do a pretty good worm. Nice, nice. Actually, well, I should not even say this out loud, uh, but I I did the worm at my wedding as well. So just to prove that I could still do it. Is there a video? <laughs> <laughs> there is not. Thank goodness. I think there are pictures, but uh, but no video. So, um, but anyway, uh, thanks for sharing that I, and. Thank you for putting headphones in today. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't know you didn't you disliked them so much. So, you know, if you were starting this this journey all over again, what advice would you give your younger self? Beyond buying Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's probably the, the, the most <laughs> advice that I would give. I don't know if I necessarily change a whole lot. I, I think in general, you know, I, I tend to look forward and I feel like a successful day for me is is where I've learned something. And if I had to do that same thing again, I would do it a little bit differently. So, you know, I, I think from a broad perspective, it, it's the things that I think people would always say is just keep your eyes open. Don't let anyone else tell you what you should do and follow to some extent what you're really interested in. You know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family and, you know, I was supposed to be a doctor or an engineer. And I went to college and uh, did not tell my parents what my major was. <laughs> <laughs> until about three years in and they're like, are you going to get a job? But you know, it's, it's worked out. Okay. Well, I, you know, a couple more marketing related questions. Are there any topics you think marketers should be learning more about, or you're, you're frankly trying to learn more about right now? Marketers in general. And I, and I'm kind of at fault of this as well as we think about, you know, who is the audience that has the most money right now? 
So it's millennials for the most part. But I think what's even more important is to think through what is your 13-year-old thinking about doing? What's interesting to them? And really starting to dig into what does that next generation look like? Because in five or 10 years, you know, they're going to be the the 20-somethings and they're going to be the ones driving the trends right now. And so I think getting ahead of that curve quickly, because, you know, obviously it takes a while to bring new innovations to market, but even also just from a a brand building perspective, if you do want to shift what your brand stands for or begin to take it in different directions that might be a little bit more relevant to these younger audiences, it's going to take time. And so to some extent, starting young, obviously there's some limitations with that just from a privacy standpoint, but just understanding some of those trends that are happening in the middle schools and the high schools is really important. On a personal front, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? I think just something that's really interesting, and I'm I'm curious to see where this will go, is just the companies that are purpose-led. And just understanding how that's ultimately going to play out, obviously from a branding perspective, and you know, is that going to resonate to some extent, um, but also from a financial perspective, how is that going to actually pan out? Is this going to be things that more and more companies are actually going to adopt? Um, you know, I think uh, Group Denon uh, in France, you know, they've obviously switched to a more sustainable model where they have multiple stakeholders, but... I don't know if you've been following the news, but there's been some activist shareholders who are trying to disrupt things a little bit. And so the question is, is that going to be a, a sustainable model over the long term? And so understanding how that tracks. And then, you know, there, there are obviously a number of smaller purpose-led brands. Um, one of the ones that actually a friend of mine started it, which is why I know, I know about it. And I'll, I'll give them a shout out. It's Edom, which is a, uh, it's a skincare for people of color line. And so I think there's a lot of different products like that, brands like that, that are targeting, whether it's certain audiences or certain purposes, it will be really interesting to see how that ultimately plays out, especially in the context of you know, kind of your existing players that haven't done that. And do they evolve in that direction or from a financial perspective, it just doesn't end up working out. It's definitely a big conversation point right now. And um, in the trades of our industry, you, you can't read really any any third story is about purpose or something related to it. I have the same questions, frankly, like, will this play out? Do consumers at the end of the day really make their purchase decisions based on it or not? Because I like to think that I'm a good conscious consumer, (laughs) Uh, not to the extreme, I'm sure, but like, you know, but I'll go into an REI as an example. And pretty much all of the brands in there are doing something related to conservation or, sustainability or, or something of that nature. And I, I find myself, you know, I was buying a raincoat last fall and because I ne- just needed a new one. Other one was wore out and found myself like torn between do I buy the REI co-op version or the Patagonia version? And I just couldn't bring myself to justify the Patagonia upcharge, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and I was like, mm, REI is still doing really good things for the world. I'll go with the REI version. <laughs> so it does present kind of like this dynamic, especially once everyone starts to move in that direction or a critical mass, I, I should say, in your category moves in that direction. Yeah. I think obviously if you see in the research, people say that they want it, but, you know, and they say they'll pay for it, but they sometimes don't. But I think actually you bring up another good example, which is I think a lot of consumers, uh, and maybe more so in in Europe than here, 
assume that there is already some sustainability built into the products. And so like you made the choice between REI and Patagonia and you're like, yeah, they're both fairly sustainable. You know, they're both doing good things. And so push comes to shove, I'll, I'll just go for something that's slightly cheaper. And so to your point, as more and more companies do, it'll be interesting to see if that's just another table stakes. Last question for you. Um, what do you feel like is the either largest opportunity or biggest threat facing marketers today? The opportunity and the threat is consumers, but specifically consumers are becoming incredibly smart. And it's obviously just enabled by the vast amount of information at their fingertips. Uh, and so as you think about marketing and, and brand building, you know, no longer is the brand seen as the expert, the consumer is seen as the expert and they see themselves as the expert. And so understanding how to shift your communications to appeal to those folks. Um, and even if they aren't really experts, they think they are. And so certainly I think changes how you want to think about interacting with them and how you want to think about communicating with them. Niddle, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, giving us this master class, if you will, on uh, Agile Master Brand. Thank you. It's been great. Appreciate it. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.